And now, Virgin Most Powerful Radio is pleased to present Hands-On Apologetics with renowned Catholic author and apologist, Gary Machuda. And welcome, everybody, to Hands-On Apologetics. You have entered into Virgin Most Powerful's Apologetics Dojo. It's great to be with you today. Yes, rocking and rolling through the week. Actually starting to feel a little better. The weather has changed. Thanks be to God. And uh, at least, you know, I can breathe. That's good. That's good for broadcasting, right? It's no fun listening to the radio and listening to the host uh, gasping for air. That's just not good, entertaining, or informative radio. But, hey, uh, it's uh, Wednesday, and we have a fantastic show in store for you because we're going to have Eric Ibarra come on. Eric, as you know, um, is a Catholic layperson, a convert to the Catholic faith, who has done an enormous amount of studying. And uh, and, uh, it, it just amazes me how he can retain all this information in his brain. But uh, he has published and uh, has been on the web uh, numerous times looking at issues between Catholics and Orthodox, uh, church history issues, the papacy. We've had him on a show because he has uh, released three books, like um, just one, two, three, right out of the gate. And these books are fascinating works. And, and, and they really do... Um, mirror that uh, incredible amount of research that he put into these topics. We talked about Melchizedek and the sacrifice of the mass. We also talk about the filioque, uh, the Holy Spirit preceding from the Father and the Son, uh, probably one of the major points of contention between Orthodox and Catholics. Today we're going to look at his third book, which is probably the biggest contention between Catholics and Protestants. The book's titled, The Just Shall Live by Faith, Resolving the Catholic-Protestant Debate on Justification from Paul's Epistle to the Romans. So, uh, man, if that uh, if you're an apologist and you hear that as the title of a book, um, man, you'd want to snap it up right away because uh, that is the key in the heart of the heart of the issue in many, many different ways. Because after all, Martin Luther came up with this understanding of uh, solo fide largely through his uh, investigation into Psalms, but especially the book of Romans and Galatians. And, uh, and, the, and for that reason, Romans and Galatians looms large on the Protestant biblical landscape. Um, that is their meat and potatoes. Not so much the Gospels, oddly enough. Uh, for Catholics, the Gospels are, are really the heart and center of our biblical landscape. But it's really the Epistles of Paul and specifically, uh, especially Romans, because it seems as if um, in Paul's writings that he clearly and explicitly teaches the Protestant side of justification. By the way, for those who aren't familiar with what justification is, it's, it's just a fancy theological term 
to explain the process by which God makes sinners into people who are acceptable to himself, into saints. And so uh, he justifies people. That is, he makes them right or he uh, uh, makes them just. So we're going to be talking about this book and with our good friend Eric Ibarra on the other side of the break, on this side of the break. We're going to do what we always do. We sharpen our critical thinking skills with the Finding the Fallacy segment. Today's Finding the Fallacy is the appeal to ignorance. And also we meet an early church father. Today's early church father. Um, he, he's somewhat important, but uh, I think uh, unless uh, you're really focused on history of philosophy or um, something like that. You probably aren't familiar with them. It's Aristides of Athens. Aristides of Athens. So, got a great show in store for us. So, I want to welcome all of you to the dojo. Welcome aboard, everybody. All of you watching live stream. And also, all of you listening on radio around the country and also via podcast around the world. Welcome aboard, everybody. Uh, Great to have you with us. By the way, if you want to listen to Hands-On Apologetics or all the other great shows Virtual Most Powerful produces, you can get the handy-dandy phone app, Virtual Most Powerful phone app, and listen to live stream off your phone. Or you can visit our flagship website, which is virtualmostpowerfulradio.org. And in that, you can access our show and all the other shows. You can download it. You can share it. You can do all sorts of great things. You do evangelism with the stuff on the website and also you keep abreast of all the great conferences that Virgin Most Powerful uh, puts on. And so tap into those resources indeed. Um, also the official Dojo mailbox, if you'd like to get a hold of me, um, the best way to do so is through questions at handsonapologetics.com. Let me repeat that, questions at handsonapologetics.com. That does come directly to me, and I do try to answer them. You know, it's it's scary because I get emails from addresses I didn't even set up. I don't even know where these things come from, and so that that scares me because I wonder if there's there's fake addresses out there that don't reach me. That's why, please, please, please use the official questions at Hands On Apologetics email. That way, for sure, it comes to me, and I do read them and enjoy them. And I try to uh, respond as soon as possible. Um, Let's see. Yeah, okay. I think we're all set. Why don't we jump into the finding the fallacy for today, which is the appeal to ignorance. This fallacy occurs uh, when you argue that your conclusion must be true because there is no evidence against it. Um, this fallacy wrongly shifts the burden of proof away from the one who make is making the claim. So, uh, something is true because it can't be proved to be false. Now on the surface, that ought to strike you as kind of weird, right? Um, it's, uh, there's nothing to the contrary. So therefore it must stand. Um, that doesn't prove that it's true. And all you're doing is as the uh, fallacy says, you're just appealing to our ignorance as to whether or not it's so. Um, By the way, here's a classic cultural example of it. For you nerds out there that ever watched the, uh, the, sometimes it's voted the number one worst movie ever made is Plan 9 from Outer Space. If memory serves me correctly, I think the movie ends with an appeal to ignorance 
where it says, uh, can you prove that this stuff didn't happen? And of course it asserts that, you know, or implies it must have happened. So that's kind of funny. Funny how these fallacies tie into things. Okay, let's meet our early church father for today, who is Aristides of Athens. Of Aristides, we know nothing beyond the meager information provided by Eusebius, who says of him that he was a man of faith and devoted to our religion, and in another place implies that he was a philosopher in the city of Athens. Uh, Only by dating the work can we provide a date for his life. So there's not a lot to know about uh, this particular early church father. Uh, We have his work, the Apology, which we date around 140. An Armenian fragment of the Apology, bearing the title to the Emperor Hadrian Caesar from the Athenian philosopher Aristides, and now known definitively to be a part of an Aramean um, translation of the Apology of Aristides, was published in 1878 from a 10th century manuscript uh, internal reasons suggest that the work was addressed to the emperor familiarly known as hadrian um but um not a hadrian but to a successor antonius pius uh, whose name actually includes the name hadrian in it his reign was between the years 138 and 161 a.d the work is generally assigned to the beginning of Antonius's reign sometime around 140 AD. In 1889, uh, J. Rendell Harris discovered a complete uh, text of the Apology of Aristides in Syriac. Uh, and previously, the work was known only by the title and by the Aramean uh, fragment mentioned earlier by Jurgens. With the discovery of the Syriac translation, now this is kind of cool, the startling fact became evident that the Greek text had already been extant for a long time. We've had this text, and it was only by discovering these fragments that we were able to put two and two together. See, the problem was we had the text. We didn't know where it came from. Why? Because it was incorporated into a text. Uh, it was falsely attributed to St. John Damascene in his work, uh, Bar-Lam and Josephat. So, interesting enough, these fragments point out that we actually had the work all along. We just had it under the wrong author. And so, rather than being a writing from one of the last of the early church fathers, it actually is a very, very early writing from uh, 140. Um, so, um, very, very interesting stuff. Um Let's see, I think I, yeah, I probably have enough to just quote a little bit so you can get a flavor of what he wrote. Christians trace their origin to the Lord Jesus Christ, who came down from heaven in the Holy Spirit for the salvation of men, is confessed to be the Son of the Most High God. He was born of a holy virgin without seed of man and took flesh without defilement. He appeared among men so that he might recall them from the error of polytheism. When he had accomplished his wonderful design by his uh, own free will and for the marvelous purpose, he tasted the death of the cross. After three days, however, he came to life again and went up to the heavens. 
And that is our early church father for today, Aristides of Athens. Coming up next, we're going to be chatting with Eric Barra about his brand new work on justification. Stay tuned. Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. If you'd like to join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody. Hands-On Apologetics. So we're going to talk about the heart of the heart of the issue between Catholics and Protestants, and that is justification by faith alone and the Epistle of Romans. And, uh, of course, we're talking about a brand-new book put out by our good friend Erica Barra. The title is The Just Shall Live by Faith, Resolving the Catholic-Protestant Debate on Justification from Paul's Epistle to the Romans. And uh, you can check out all of Eric's great works in his uh, blog, ericabarra.org. And, Eric, welcome back to Hands-On Apologetics. Thank you so much, Gary, for having me on again. This is... uh an exciting time to talk about such a, a controversial topic, and uh, I'm just so happy to be here. Yeah, well, hey, I I I really I thank God that your schedule works out so that we can get together because, like I said, every time you come on, I feel like I earn credit, you know, uh, academic credit <laughs> towards a degree. <laughs> I learned so much from you, and this book is awesome too. But before we start talking about the book. Um, maybe we should give a little bit of background because you're a convert to the faith. So this book is really the fruit of your own research in changing your mind on justification. That's correct, Gary. And so I started studying this particular doctrine with a, uh, a, with a level of depth um, back since 2005, really, I've been studying this issue for much longer than I've looked into church history. Hmm. So, wow. yeah, it's a doctrine that was very dear to me when I was a Protestant because um, the community I was in, the doctrine of justification, sola fide, was like the defining mark of the gospel. And so... The, uh, to the degree that you are immersed in that topic, that is the same degree to which you are immersed in the very gospel itself. And so um, it, it it was just, I read everything I could get my hands on from the Puritans, from Martin Luther, John Calvin, the Institutes, um, people who followed that legacy for for each century going forward all the way to the present. And I just wanted to defend it so much. And it was actually while I was a Protestant that I began to see that the texts of the New Testament were actually not teaching precisely the sola fide doctrine that I had been taught. And part of what made me so hungry to learn more was because I was seeing the deficiency and I wanted to make up for the deficiency by just getting more into the text. So I, I was learning Koine Greek. I was reading commentaries. I was uh, emailing and contacting some of the best Greek New Testament scholars all over the globe to try and help me see that the New Testament really does teach sola fide. Well, the light bulb eventually came on that I need to start considering the possibility that it doesn't teach that. 
and that's uh, that's while I was a Protestant already. <laughs> um, so that's the you know the, that 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 led me out of you know the uh, Baptistic and Lutheran tradition, and I found a happy home in the Anglican Church. Which, if any of your listeners are familiar, I know you are, uh, Gary. Um, some Anglicans have a small pocket for nuance on justification. And so I kind of held my uh, quirky adjustment, you know, Protestantized view of justification that was comporting with Roman and Ortho- Roman Catholic and Orthodox teaching. Um, but eventually I knew that that wasn't realistic because the Anglican Church historically also condemned um, Rome for its teaching on justification. So that that's the history you know i've i've always wanted to write about this and so i got a chance to write about it this this past year thank god and so everything that i've been learning since 2005 i've crammed into 150 pages <laughs> and i can tell you that is an achievement in and of itself because it's easy to write uh, a huge you know thousand i know this sounds counterintuitive to those listening but it's easy to write a thousand page Manuscript because you just put everything in, but to try to put it into a, a smaller readable, uh, you really um, need to discern like what to leave out and and still make everything clear. And that's, that's really correct. difficult. Yeah, it's very difficult because at a certain point you have to trust that your readers are going to be able to fill in the gaps. Yeah. Um, and you just know there's going to be readers who aren't going to connect the dots the way you want them to connect the dots. Um, and you, you just have to be content with that. And, um, but hopefully in this book, I, I try to make it very clear, uh, what precisely I was saying. And in the footnotes, uh, for those who were more interested, I tried to say, read this or read that extra work to get more information on that. So, um, it was very difficult, but, uh, I, I, I think I made it in a readable Format and I've actually had some Lutherans uh, tell me that they were uh, that that they thought it was an extremely well written book. So I've had some feedback from Protestants already. Beautiful, yeah. I love books like that, Eric, because when I first started uh, started in apologetics and I didn't know a lot, I stuck to the text and I ignored the footnotes. But then once I became advanced and I kind of understood the lay of the land. Um, then I go back and I look at the footnotes and I only read the footnotes. And, uh, so I love books exactly like that. Now, so what was, I have to ask, what was the, the first, uh, clue you had that something was awry, you know, uh, reading Paul's writings and thinking about justification? Yeah. So the first thing that I noticed was that, um, in, in the presentations that I was used to hearing from the pulpit, or from uh, lectures and uh, university uh, symposiums and things like that, was the, the Protestant scholars were trying to emphasize so much that what we need in order to be saved is for someone else, a perfect human being, to live a perfectly righteous life in our place, such that at the end of their life, they can kind of like put their good works from birth to death into like a folder and then we get transferred that folder so that way when we die 
we can stand before God the judge and say, hey, um, I lived I lived the life of Jesus perfectly. Look at my folder. Voila, I'm justified. Hmm. Um, and that's it. I mean, it's there's nothing incoherent about that. So it's not that it's irrational. Um, it's just a matter of whether that's what the Bible teaches, right? Right. And but I, I it just kept it, it was like a bug on my shoulder playing with my ear. It's like the Bible nowhere clearly teaches that. You know, I kept looking and looking and looking and looking for um, where the Bible clearly teaches that, and I just couldn't do it. And so that was the first thing that that bothered me was that we were making this such a dogmatic point that if you didn't believe this, you weren't even a Christian, okay? This, because I come from, I was in a Reformed Baptist church. We held to the London Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689, and this doctrine of imputation was absolutely essential. Um, For the listeners, imputation, that's the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us so that we stand before God. And God looks at us forensically, not as if we lived the lives that we actually lived, but as if we lived the life that Jesus lived from his incarnational conception all the way to his death on the cross. Um, and uh, it just seemed like there was so much demand for biblical reflection for that if we're going to make it such a, a hard, bulldogmatic requirement. Mm-hmm. I, I hope that makes sense. Uh, it just—I I just didn't see the the scriptural ammunition to support such a isolationist and exclusivist uh, requirement on 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 a doctrine like that. So that's what led me to go into the Bible and um, really talking with a lot of the Protestant scholars that are, that, that back in 2005, um, the new perspective was still getting hot and heavy in, in Protestant circles. So I started talking to guys like Douglas J. Moo. Um, I had an interaction with N.T. Wright. Um, there, you know, I read Jimmy Dunn. Uh, I was reading some of the uh, Protestant responses to the new perspective on Paul. Um, trying to converse with some of those guys like Stephen Westerholm um, and uh, Simon Gathercole, and just a, just this just there was just so many people in the literature. It was just such a a hot topic, and um, I noticed that some of the Protestant scholars were already backpedaling on this sure. point. Yeah. I mean, they wanted to keep the forensic element that it's it's justification is not has nothing to do with our works, has nothing to do with the interior man being renewed or transformed. So they wanted to maintain that it was forensic, just an, an act of forgiveness, basically. Um, but but a lot of scholars, especially the Greek exegetes, um, I found that they were coming around to at least saying, okay, well, the Bible never teaches this idea of the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us you know mm-hmm. and uh, when i heard when i started to hear that from some of the most respectable scholars um i started to say oh <laughs> 
Um, this uh, now we now the best the cream of the crop on the Protestant side is even recognizing that this is actually sort of like a speculative construction, and it's not something that's just clearly taught in the Bible. Um, it might be a valid construction, but a a speculative construction nonetheless, and. And uh, that changes the game because now that means that that's one of the options, um, if at best it's one of the options of what the Bible teaches. But to then be so dogmatic about it to the point where you're, you you say someone's not a Christian if they don't believe that, that kind of uh, perspective is out of the question. It's it's no longer a tenable one. So um, that's that's what really—that was the next step in, in my— uh, in my journey with this, I actually ran into some conflicts with the church I was going to. Um, the church I was going to, were, they were ready to make moves against me um, in discipline if I did not hold to the uh, the Lutheran uh, perspective on justification. Um, and so part of my penance was to uh, com- contact a well-known seminary whose name won't be mentioned, and to contact the New Testament head of the department um, to, to help me get out of this error. Well, it turns out that that New Testament scholar not only defended my doctrine, uh, but he wrote his dissertation defending uh, that imputation is not in the Scripture. <laughs> wow. Uh, we're chatting with Eric Ibarra, talking about his brand new book, The Just Shall Live by Faith, Resolving the Catholic Protestant Debate on Justification from Paul's Epistle of Romans. More to come right after this. Stay tuned. This is Jesse Romero. You're listening to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And welcome back, everybody. We're chatting with Eric Ibarra. Eric, I'm smiling just because that last line you did right before the commercial. So I sent you for your discipline to uh, contact the seminary to set you straight on the point, and it turns out that the head of the department um, of the was New actually, Testament. you know, New Testament was uh, actually defending what you're being disciplined for. <laughs> yes, that was a very strange experience. It was a seminary that we were taking. We were actually doing long distance accredited courses from that seminary, and it's a well known seminary in the evangelical world. Um, so I had, I was already. In, I was taking classes. Uh, and I was in semester, and I was told to contact the head of the New Testament there uh, because the assumption was, of course, they're going to hold to exactly what the Reformers taught and what the Protestants taught. Um, but what I was seeing at that point was that, yeah, justification is forensic, but it's not doesn't involve this very precise construction of the imputation of Christ's righteousness. And so this professor... Um, he he just basically said, "Look, I think that I can still be uh, a, a Protestant and hold what I hold, but I I I reject the idea that Christ's righteousness is imputed to us forensically as part of our justification." And so when I um, when I brought that news to my elders, they were baffled, and so they were they were, they had to force themselves into a situation where do we now cut off everything that we we have yeah. committed to this seminary they, they were they were sending people to that seminary who wanted to be scholars you know um or do we now allow that this issue is not 
uh, a, an essential doc, dogma. And so they chose to say, well, there's more wiggle room on the doctrine of justification now. Um, so they had like a church council, I guess you could say. <laughs> um, so, yeah, you know, but it, it, that was a stepping stone for me. Obviously, I wasn't I didn't make full circle. I I had to do a lot more research to come and see that actually the Bible and the patristic tradition um, was teaching exactly what the Catholic Church uh, teaches, that justification takes place in baptism and that it, it that it involves more than just a forensic declaration um, as constitutive of what happens to a person when they are justified. And so that, and that's why I wrote this book. You know, I wrote this book because um, this is it, The Just Shall Live by Faith. The hardcover is available as well. Um, if, if you're going to talk about the doctrine of justification with Protestants, you're, you're talking about New Testament territory. And if you're going into the exegesis of the New Testament, you're talking about Romans territory, the book of Romans. That's where it always goes back to. So that's why this book is basically just structured off of going through a tour of Romans to see if what Paul is teaching is, is what Luther discovered or if it's what the Catholic Church has taught and what has the testimony of the, uh, the, the, the best of the minds in the early church fathers going forward. Um, so that's the, that's the book is structured off of, of going through the first eight chapters of Romans and determining what is it that Paul meant when he, when he was writing about this issue of the gift of justification. Yeah, and yeah, that's so important. I mean, it's uh, Romans is seminal to uh, the whole discussion. I mean, like I mentioned, uh, Luther, uh, it was his writings on Psalms and also Romans and Galatians that started yeah. Sola Fide. And even on the popular level, you, you have the Romans Road, right, where it's uh, just a uh, evangelical, um, I don't know what you would say, a mechanism that you could take somebody through the Epistle of Romans and they'll become justified the Protestant way, right? So yes. it's very important. It is. And um, so th the book is written for people who may not be familiar with the debate or even with justification to begin with. Um, you might have to read the introduction a couple of times if that's where you're at. Um, so any of the listeners who are interested, um, give the intro a couple of reads if you're brand new to this, because I do eventually get into some details that uh, are really within the economy of academics today in, 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 in our world who still go back and forth on this issue. Um, so anybody who's really big into Bible study will like it because I get really deep into the text of Romans, um, especially with the help of the Church Fathers and St. Thomas Aquinas. I, it's like they're taking my hand, basically, throughout the book. Um, so um, the, the, the principal uh, theme in my book is what does Paul mean by the phrase, the righteousness of God? Because that's that phrase is hotly debated. It's been debated now, especially for 30 years, um, ever since E.P. Sanders wrote his uh, his book on giving a new look towards uh, Second Temple Judaism 
and the usage of the the, the phrase uh, ergu nomu, the works of the law. Um, so the dikaya sune tutheu, righteousness of God, has also been a phrase of uh, intense study, lots of debates. So I go in here and I think I I, I think that. Defining that phrase is definitely important. So we go to Romans 1, 16 through 7 to 17, which is like what both Catholics and Protestants believe to be like the thematic opening of the book of Romans, where, where Paul says that he is not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God to salvation. And then he gives a reason for why it's the power of God to salvation. He says, because in the gospel— Romans 1.17, the righteousness of God is made known from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So that right there is, my book is basically unpacking what Paul means by that, from the rest of his epistle in Romans, from the Church Fathers' interpretation of Romans, and then, uh, you know, ultimately, or penultimately, what Aquinas uh, taught about justification, and then ultimately what the Catholic Church teaches about it. And um, one of the one of the verses that helped me the most um, in this is uh, understanding what Paul means by the word power when he when he uses the Greek word dunamis with relation to justification. Um, does can, can you really bring in such a, a, a powerful word if what you're going to talk about is simply a forensic declaration over somebody? When Paul, when Paul says dunamis, he means something far more, uh, far more um, invasive than just uh, an outward pardoning of someone. And the way I know that is because Ephesians 1, verses uh, 18 to 22, says that the power that God works in us, the dunamis that God works in us in order to save our souls, is not just some general power. He says it's the, it's the same power that God the Father, or you know the Holy Trinity, worked into the corpse of the human nature of Christ in the tomb of St. Joseph of Arimathea. Hmm. The very power that gave life to the, to the dead body of our Lord and brought him out of the tomb. That's what Paul means by dunamis. Okay? It's resurrection power. So in Romans 1.16, when you're saying that the gift of justification is God's power being released upon us through faith, it can't be just an exterior, external, alien justification that has nothing to do invasively with our souls and with the quality of our being. It has to be something that joins together with Christ in his own transition from, from death to life. And and that's that's what we read in the in the in the book of Romans as going forward is that salvation is not just what Jesus did for us. It's also what Je- that what we have happened to us together with Christ. 
this is where Romans 6 comes in, where Paul talks about dying together with Christ, bear, being buried together with Christ, and coming alive together with Christ. So what we have here are certain transitions that happened in Jesus's own career. These are things that happened to Christ and himself. He's, he died, he was buried, and he was risen from the dead. But those redemptive events become the paradigm for what happens to us when we get saved. So not so Christ isn't the only one who dies and is buried and it rises. That is actually going to become the profile of every person who's baptized. And this is one of the reasons why Paul says this. You have died. You have been raised together with Christ. And that is the controlling motif of salvation in Pauline theology. So nowhere do we get within that framework this idea where justification is purely a forensic reality. And um, I give further evidence to that by uh, – how are we on time? I think we probably have like a minute or so left. Yeah, just under a minute. Yep. Okay, I'll try to keep it very short. But there's two verses in the Old Testament that Paul sees as like the paradigm of his doctrine of justification. That's Habakkuk 2.4, the just shall live by faith, and Genesis 15.6, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. So we'll unpack the meaning of those two verses in the Old Testament. And that will determine what Paul means in the New Testament. Yeah, yeah, very good, very good. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, excellent. I mean, as you were speaking, I was thinking, you know, all sorts of verses pop into my mind where Paul associates justification with resurrection. Like, uh, he died for our sins and he was raised for our justification. Yes, you know, that, yes. I mean, that basically equates the two. Yes. Uh, we're chatting with Eric Ibarra, talking about his brand new book, The Just Shall Live by Faith. Resolving the Catholic-Protestant debate on justification from Paul's Epistle of Romans. Definitely, you have a lot more to come right after this. Stay tuned. Now, back to Hands-On Apologetics with Gary Machuda. If you'd like to join the conversation, call 888-526-2151. Here's Gary. And welcome back, everybody. We're chatting with our Eric Ibarra of ericabarra.org. And uh, the third of his Grand Slam trio of books that he has recently released, The Filioque, Melchizedek and the Last Supper, and we're talking about justification by faith, and uh, justification and the Epistle of Romans. And so before the break, uh, you set us up with the uh, the two key illust Old Testament illustrations Paul uses, Habakkuk and also uh, Abraham. So yeah, if you want to dive into that, let's look at it. Yeah, yeah, this is it. So those two verses are um, sort of go Paul's go-to when he wants to say, hey, the law and the prophets taught what I'm teaching. He went to Habakkuk 2.4 and Genesis 15.6. Now, um, we don't want to put too much into that. I mean, those verses are not like treatises, right? But um, what those verses mean will provide clues to what Paul means by the, the doctrine. So Habakkuk 2.4 um, says the following, Behold the proud man, his soul, 
is not upright in him. But the just man shall live by faith. So, you know, without going into the Habakkukian theme and why Habakkuk was written and all that, um, what this is saying is that there are the proud. Those are the ones who don't believe in God. They, ha they have unbelief, okay? But those who trust in the Lord, those who have faith in God, are the ones who will live. Now, since the contrast is between the proud man and the believing man, okay, that means that believing has to carry some signification to the quality of someone's lifestyle. Because if the contrast is between the proud man and the believing man, then included in that contrast has to be a contrast between the proud man and the humble one. So that means the believing man has to have that virtue of humility. So almost every Jew knew this, because I've been through the commentaries on Habakkuk 2.4, um, and the, the pre-New Testament Jews, um, they all seem to read this text as a, a statement about the man who is living in fidelity towards God. That's what it means by faith. The just shall live by faith. And the Hebrew, so I'm, I'm going past the Septuagint here, I'm going back to the Hebrew. The word, the Hebrew word is emunah. The just shall live by emunah. Well, what does that verse mean? Does it really just mean like an ascent of truth? Or is there something more involved? Well, if you go into a concordance and look at everywhere else in the Hebrew scriptures, where emunah is used, you find that it consistently means steadfastness. So, for example, when Moses was facing, uh, when the Israelites were facing the Amalekites, I think it was the Amalekites, I can't remember exactly, but Israel was at war, and Moses had to keep his hands up um, as a way for Israel to maintain their victory, but to the degree that his hands went down, Israel was suffering. And so what ended up happening was other men came to help Moses keep his arms emuna, meaning steadfast, up. <laughs> um, Interesting. Yeah, so Habakkuk, you know, the just man shall live by emuna. it's got to mean more than just a believing in facts, right? It has to be, it has to carry a, a qualitative signification, meaning that this person not just, they don't just believe in God like the devils believe. They believe in God in such a way that they love God and want, they want his plan for their life and they reject all other temptations. See? So, that's what that verse means. I don't I, even Protestant Hebrew exegetes are at pains to avoid this. Okay, yeah. so if that is one of the paradigmatic texts that Paul draws from to teach the doctrine of salvation and justification by faith, okay, then then Paul can't do violence to the original meaning of Habakkuk two four. 
Right. Now, gr- granted, the the the, uh, the Septuagint says piste, pist- pistis, or pisteos, um, but they're they're just translating the Hebrew, which the Hebrew is the original. Um, and Paul is being inspired by the Holy Spirit. He's not going to be co- contradicting the original text. Okay, right. so that's one clue that justification in Paul means something more than just uh, a bare trust. While I'm still kind of out of conformity with God's will, yeah, it's got to be. Go ahead, yeah. Oh yeah, if I could interject real quick, you know, I studied this as well. Okay, and what great. I found is Protestant commentators in Habakkuk say it's it's faithfulness, it's fidelity. But when you go to the New Testament, suddenly it's just the ascent of faith. It's yes. kind of funny. So what you said yeah. is absolutely true. It's just they, yeah. they just don't put them together. Exactly, Gary. What they do is they'll say, well, it looks like there's a range of meaning. Habakkuk is emphasizing the what faith produces eventually— what Paul's talking about is faith itself, but that kind of this that's 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 very manipulative in my opinion. I'd rather go with just the fact that let's just say that Paul means what Habakkuk means. Yeah, right. <laughs> let's go with that option. Yeah, um, exactly. So that's a clue. Um, the other clue is Genesis fifteen six, which is is that's like the go to for the Protestant debates in the sixteenth century. Paul in Romans four. You know, he's excluding works. What it looks like, he's excluding all works. You know, um, the 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 man who does not work but believes is the one whose faith is accounted for righteousness. And then he cites Abraham. Abraham believed God, and it was accredited to him for righteousness. Okay. Well, here similarly, the same thing. You know, we look at the Hebrew commentaries on Genesis fifteen six. We look at the commentary that Moses himself gives um, in Genesis fifteen, and we find that it doesn't mean the kind of thing by faith, which in that you know in in that text um, it it does it can mean trust, right? Because God's giving a promise, Abraham's trusting in the promise, um, but what we find consistently prior to the Reformation is that Abraham's faith is what is credited as his righteousness. So there's something about faith that gives Abraham this quality in the eyes of God, rather than faith being just like a uh, an instrument, like an empty, worthless instrument, like like the pipes in a house, you know, they have value, but really their value is just to take one thing and transport something through it. So uh, Protestants have that understanding, justification by faith. Faith is just the pipe that connects me with the righteousness of Christ. But that's not what the text of Genesis 15 says. What it says is Abraham believed God, and it was credit to him for righteousness, meaning his faith was calculated as righteousness in the eyes of God. And we know that that's what Paul means, because in Romans 4, he gives us the reason why Abraham was accounted as righteousness, that was counted as righteousness. In Romans 4, 
for the listeners, verses 18 to 22, he says, Abraham, though he was old and though Abraham's womb was, uh, Sarah's womb was, was just as good as dead, he gave glory to God and persevered. He did not grow weak in unbelief. He did not waver at the promise, but persevering and giving glory to God, he believed that God was able to do what he said he would. And therefore, Romans 4.22, and therefore it was accredited to him for righteousness. So what we have here is Paul describing these features of Abraham's faith as to how it was unwavering. He did not give in to unbelief. He gave glory to God. He grew strong, and therefore it was credited to him for righteousness. So why would Paul list these features and then give the, and therefore it was accredited to him for righteousness? If he doesn't mean to include in that righteousness the very features that he just described. Right. So that so th- this is the you know the two the, the two verses in the old testament that control the argument of the book i said okay well what do the church fathers have to say about that because a lot of the reformers were appealing to ambrose hillary of poitiers um they were appealing to augustine even um john chrysostom because a lot of these guys did use this, the term faith alone they did they, they did But when you go into the context, you see that what they mean is that faith itself has this qualitative meaning that involves an ethical significance, that the person is actually faithful to God, and their life is being faithful to God, and this is why God views them as righteous. And also, we can't forget, in the book of Romans, faith is is the way that the blood atonement of Christ is applied to us. So the satisfaction and merits of Christ cover all of our sin. So that's why justification involves both the negative aspect and the positive aspect. The negative aspect is the remission of our sins that were was purchased in the blood of Christ, and also the interior renewal of the inward man. Okay? And then it also involves the final judgment, where God will examine our life. And I found that the church fathers gave a very different meaning to those two Old Testament texts, um, one that comports only with a Catholic or an Eastern Orthodox meaning. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's fantastic. And it's a great sampler of the, what people will find if you pick up the Just Shall Live by Faith. Uh, Eric, I, I can't believe this, but the hour is gone already. Yeah, I know. Um, where can people go to get a hold of all of your books, including this? So, yeah, they'll be on Amazon. Just go to Amazon, type in my name, and all three of my books will come up. But uh, thank you for having me on, Gary. We'll do this again. Absolutely. It's always a pleasure, my friend. Uh, that's Eric Ibarra. Yeah, check it out, Amazon. Uh, just type in his name. You can see his books, or just go to ericabarra.org. Wow. All right. So the hour is flowing. Coming up next, High Impact Catholic Talk coming at you with the Terry and Jesse Show. Thank you so much for listening. And God willing, we'll be back again tomorrow. Do this thing with all hands on apologetics. Bye-bye, everyone. Have a great day.